Welcome to Peak Mind. I'm your host, Michael Trainer, and this week's episode is with my very own meditation teacher, Emily Fletcher. Emily is a, a very successful Broadway actress who did a midlife career reinvention and found her inner truth through meditation. And it was such a profound reckoning that it led her to guide what I would call a sort of modern renaissance in approaching meditation and sharing meditation, teaching meditation in a way that is very resonant with modern day audiences. Uh, Ziva's based in New York City. They also have a presence in Los Angeles. They have an online curriculum. But I had the pleasure of doing the, uh, the in-person uh, education, and I've been a long time Vipassana or breath oriented meditator, but did the uh, Vedic course with Emily Fletcher from Ziva and had a really profound experience. And as I'm revivifying my own practice, deepening my own practice, and thinking about how I can be of most service to you as we approach 2020 and a new year, I'm co- going back into the archives and thinking about some of the most uh, prolific conversations that I've had. And this conversation I had some time ago, and one of the people we actually reference in the conversation is a gentleman I just want to pay respect to by the name of Sean Stevenson, otherwise known as a three-foot giant who recently passed away. And this, uh, this episode was actually recorded before he passed on. But I was so blown away by this man uh, who, at three feet tall, he had broken, he had a rare disease, he had broken over 100 bones in his body, by the time he was a very small young man, um, but never used that as an excuse and really was a beacon for transcending self-perceived limitations, transcending limiting beliefs. And so it's with great pleasure that I sort of reference him and pay tribute a, a bit to him in this conversation, as well as share some really profound truths from Emily. I think we get a lot of value out of this episode. This episode is brought to you by two of my favorite companies. The first is Juve. Juve, J-O-O-V-V, dot com backslash peak mind if you're interested, is the red light therapy I use in my morning meditation practice. I have it set up actually uh, directly next to my fireplace in my living room. And I do my morning meditation in front of the red light therapy. Now, red light therapy has a a myriad of benefits, which you can uh, read about on their website, or you can go back and listen to the episode I did with Scott Nelson on the benefits of light and red light. Uh, But for me, uh, it's been uh, hormonal uh, balancing. I've basically increased testosterone production, which which happens for men, uh, 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 progesterone for women. There's uh, skin benefits. I just actually feel better. So I notice that when I sit in front in the mornings, when I sit in front of the red light, and sometimes when I need a little pick-me-up, the beauty is I can do it at night because red light doesn't throw off your circadian rhythms. I'll just turn on that red light uh, device, the Juve, and sit in front of it. And something about it just brings me back to center. So I talk, I've talked before in Mind Keys about finding things that bring you back to center. For me, the most prolific is going out into nature and hiking. But, um, you know, some of the technologies that I've been really stoked about of late have also helped me find center. And Juve is one of those devices. So you can 
definitely uh, delve deep into the science. They have a tremendous amount of research at Juve, J-O-O-V-V.com. Again, that's J-O-O-V-V.com backslash PeakMind. Uh, you get a nice fat discount if you decide to uh, get one of their units. They have travel units. I have the Solo, which is uh, a nice mid-length panel. Uh, my friend Luke Story has a full like a full body panel, which looks epic. That's what I'm working towards here. Uh, but basically, highly recommend you check them out. Again, juve.com backslash PeakMind. This episode is also brought to you by my favorite mushroom tincture company life cycle life cycle is my go-to i take their tonics every day they have a myriad of different mushrooms from reishi to lion's mane which is amazing for your cognition to cordyceps turkey tail um, I take all five. They have what they call their biohacker pack, um, and I bought that. It's very reasonably priced, and it's amazing. I highly, highly recommend it. They they have a variety of products. Actually, they, they have a mushroom burger, which is for the vegetarians and vegans out there, or even non-vegans, uh, an amazing burger. I think one of the challenges with a lot of the vegetarian and vegan products is they are very processed, and this is a very natural, unprocessed product, so I recommend that. Um, they also just have a tr- tremendous amount of information about the benefits of mushrooms, which have been with humanity since time immemorial. And I've actually been reading uh, lately Terrence McKenna's book, which posits that mushrooms were actually key to the evolution of the human brain and consciousness. It's a theory, but it's uh, it's fascinating. So I've, I've been really thinking quite a lot about mushrooms. If you've ever listened to Paul Stamets, a uh, very interesting thinker, very, very popular TED Talk. But uh, go on their site, Lifecycle. L-I-F-E-C-Y-K-E-L dot com. And they have a tremendous amount of research. I also did a very cool uh, episode, Mind Key episode, with Julian, the founder, who I'm hopefully going to see tomorrow because he's become a dear friend. Um, But very, very knowledgeable. He goes into the efficacy and benefits of each of the mushrooms. Um, I really recommend you check them out. It's lifecycle.com. And if you put in uh, PeakMind20 at checkout, you get 20% off your order. Again, that's PeakMind20 at checkout. Check them out, Lifecycle, L-I-F-E-C-Y-K-E-L.com. And without further ado, it's my great pleasure to introduce the one and only Emily Fletcher. All right, I'm here with uh, Emily Fletcher. That's me. Meditation master, or at least I will say meditation master. Um, (laughs) Thank you for being here. It is my pleasure. So I met Emily uh, at Summit Series, On actually. the dance floor. <laughs> On the dance floor, giving it large. Yes. And by the way, for a meditation teacher, you are not the traditional uh, paradigm. There's no, you're, not a, uh, you're not bald. You're not, uh, you don't have your... <laughs> you definitely did not have your legs crossed in, uh, in Lotus. You were, uh, you were giving it serious large on the dance floor. I would like to say that I just got back from Awesomeness Fest, and in addition to having the great honor of being a speaker there, they then had a uh, speaker dance-off competition, and I won. <laughs> I'm going to give you a high five. Thank you. Amazing. Beat the founder of Google Glass and the entire <laughs> staff of Mind Valley. They challenged me against the entire staff of Mind Valley, and I still won. What? <laughs> I. I mean, I don't want to be arrogant, but <laughs> no, no, I, I don't take it as arrogance. You, you have some skills. I was impressed. And the next day, I had the pleasure of actually sitting with you and uh, a group of probably like 20 folks. Um, 
in this very, very cool ashram that they had built on the mountain and got to listen to you speak. And I was, I, I've been on and off practicing Vipassana meditation for about 20 years. But I, I thought that the way that you approached your practice was really refreshing and really accessible. Um, could you give a little background into one, how you got into meditation and to the type of meditation that you teach? Yeah, so I'll start with the type that I teach. It's called Vedic meditation, V-E-D-I-C, which comes from the Sanskrit word Veda, which means knowledge. Knowledge of what? It's knowledge of nature. It's like nature is going to be doing its nature thing, and we can either get in line with that, we can either get in flow with that and allow nature to help us get to where we want to go, or we can be rigidly attached to how we think life should show up and let nature bash us against the rocks. And one is infinitely more elegant than the other. So Vedic meditation, it's a five or six thousand year old practice, comes from India. Um, but one of the things that I think makes it so unique is that it was made for people like us, people with busy minds and busy lives. It's not a practice that is made for monks or even derivative of a monastic practice. It was actually made for what we call in India householders, hmm. meaning like so you have a job and kids and stuff to do, so you have less time in your day with which to meditate. So you actually want to go in and do something that's very powerful. You want to use that time wisely. You want to go in and really deep clean your nervous system so that when you come out on the other side, you're more awake, you have more energy, you have more bliss chemistry in your brain and body so that you can perform at the top of your game for your job, for your partner, for your kids. Versus in um, Vipassana or even some forms of mindfulness, which are derivative of monastic practices or derivative of Buddhist practices, uh, they're more monastic in nature, meaning that you go to the cave for a while, you seclude yourself for a few days, or it's about letting go of your desires or letting go of your earthly wares. Um, whereas this style, because it was made for people like us, it actually enhances your performance capabilities in the workplace with your family. Hmm. And you don't have to, you know, stop having sex and drinking Jack Daniels or dancing <laughs> on the dance floor, <laughs> which is, let's be serious, why I like it. <laughs> yeah, let's be honest. Yeah, I think, I think that's why a lot of people like it. Yes. So what, how did you come to, give us a little bit of a personal background of how you came to meditation, because I know you have a background in theater. I know you live in New York City, which is, is a hard place to be, uh, to be grounded at times. So how did, you, how did you come to your practice? So I was on Broadway for 10 years, and it was incredible. It was what I wanted to do since I was a little girl. I loved it very much. Um, but two, two big lessons came out of that. My first Broadway show was uh, 42nd Street. I was 22 years old. And three weeks after I got my Broadway debut was the saddest I had ever been. And it was very confusing to me because I really, truly, in my heart of hearts, thought that once I get on Broadway, my whole life is going to be sunshine and roses. I mean, I was picturing martinis with Liza at Sardi's, and I just it's going to be all good. And meanwhile, it's girls eating tuna fish out of a can complaining about their bunions. And I was like, this is not my dream. And so I, I got to learn at a very young age that I was more interested in the happiness of pursuit than I was the pursuit of happiness. Because once I got that goal, once I got that dream, it felt like my dream had been taken away from me and I didn't have the wherewithal at eight years old to set a new goal for after I got on Broadway. So I was sort of floundering and I was like, well, what's next? So I thought, well, it must be the next Broadway show and the next and the next and the next. And people, you know, we do this with everything. This I'll be happy when syndrome, another zero in the bank account, another partner, another kid, another degree, another car, another house, another reality TV show, one more Facebook feed. Like we just keep looking for this happiness outside of us and it can never be found there. It is impossible to find your happiness in any person, place, or thing outside of you. 
And what meditation does is that it gives you the ability to find that thing that we're all looking for, but you find it internally, um, which sounds hippy-dippy, and this is not an Emily Fletcher concept. This is not a Viva meditation concept. Basically, every spiritual text has been saying this since the beginning of time. What you seek is in you. And that's fine to get that as an intellectual idea, but it's much more powerful to be able to experience that viscerally, physically, in your bones every day, twice a day, which is what this practice has given me. And then the thing is, it's nice when you're meditating, sure, but when you come out of the meditation on the other side, you bring that bliss with you. You bring that fulfillment with you to your day, to your job, to your kids. And so it takes that longing and that neediness uh, that death grip on your desires loosens up a little bit, which I would argue makes them show up more effortlessly and, and more quickly even. But I digress. Back to how I found meditation. So I started on 42nd Street. Uh, I was on Broadway for 10 years, and <clears throat> my last Broadway show was a chorus line. And I was understudying three of the lead roles, which basically means that you show up to the theater and you have no idea what you're doing that night. Sometimes I would start the show as one character and then halfway through the show they would switch me to a different character. And I listen to the podcast so people can't see me, but I'm 5'9 with red hair. Like, I'm not hiding. <laughs> just like, they're going to know that I'm there. And so it was weird. For the audience, it was weird for me. They're like, why was this Amazonian, Amazonian woman like this character and now she's this one? Um, or sometimes I would just be chilling in my dressing room doing my taxes and they would get on the loudspeaker and say, Emily Fletcher, to the stage, please. And I'll be like, <gasps> you know, just having a full and panic attack. It's like, which costume do I put on? And they wouldn't tell me, so I'd grab all three leotards, run down seven flights of stairs. Someone would throw me in an outfit. I would get on this Broadway stage, look around and say, oh, okay, I'm Val today and start singing Tits and Ass, which is P.S. <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> I, mean, I can imagine. Some people are good at it. Not me. Um, and it was really bringing me a lot of anxiety. I started going gray at 26 years old. I started having insomnia for 18 months. I couldn't sleep through the night. Wow. I started getting sick. I started getting injured. And I was miserable. And it was really confusing to me again. Like, why am I living my dream? And I'm not happy. So thankfully, this amazing woman was sitting next to me in the dressing room. She was understudying five of the lead roles, which to this day, I don't know how she did it, but she was nailing it. I mean, everything this woman did was a celebration. And so finally, I was like, I'm going to need to have some of what she's having. And I was like, what do you know that I don't know? And she said, I meditate. I said, and? <laughs> she said, no, no, it really helps my focus, my concentration, my performance anxiety. And I didn't believe her, so I just kept getting sick and being injured and going gray and being pissed about it. And then finally it got so bad, I was so embarrassed about my performance that I said, I have to try something. So I went along this intro to meditation talk. I liked what I heard. It made sense to me. So I signed up for this four-day course. First day, first course, I was meditating. Now, between you and me, I didn't know what that meant, but I was doing something different that I had never done before, and I liked it. And then that night, I slept through the night for the first time in 18 months. And I have every night since, and that was almost nine years ago. So you, you had, like, actual, not, not like, Oh, I was, you know, I couldn't sleep. You had insomnia. Like. Insomnia. Like, I mean, yes, I did sleep some, but it would be tossing and turning for hours, a couple of hours of sleep, back up, and then just, like, stressing myself out because I'm not sleeping. Because, you know, your, your voice sucks if you're not sleeping. You can't dance if you're not sleeping. Like, my body was my instrument. Right. And so the sleep was so imperative, and then I wasn't getting it, and I was getting even more stressed about it which is torture. So the first thing they do to prisoners of war is sleep deprive them. Yeah. Like it is a form of torture and, and it's, it's terrible on the body. Um, both that exhaustion and the stress is it ages you expeditiously, which is why I was going gray. Um, so 
yeah, first day, first course, I'm meditating, and then that night I slept through the night, and I have every night since that was nine years ago, and then I stopped getting sick, I stopped getting injured, I stopped going gray. I'm 35 now, and I know, again, this is a podcast, but I don't have gray hair anymore. No, not at all. Um, and it's, it's just, it's up-leveled my performance in my life so dramatically that I felt inspired and really compelled to share it with others. So I left Broadway in 2009, I went to India, I went to Rishikesh, India, and I began what became a three-year training process to teach this. Um, and then I graduated and opened up Viva Meditation, which is my company. I have a studio in New York and hopefully opening one in L.A. soon. Um, and then started the first online meditation training called Ziva Mind, which I'm really proud of because it gives people all, all over the world access to this practice, even if they don't have access to a teacher face-to-face. -face. And to be honest, it's been the most um, rewarding and creative, surprisingly creative chapter of my life. And... You know, I love it so much because I get to wake up to emails from people saying like, I, my migraines are gone, my insomnia is gone, I quit drinking, I wrote this book, I'm dating this person, and like, this is what I wake up to every day. Like, these are my customer service emails. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, it's good. So, so it sounds like, I mean, unequivocally, the practice changed your life, but you saw immediate results it's almost instantaneously, I mean, in terms of your sleep. Yeah. So in this nine years and how long have you how long have you actually been practicing in, in terms of it as a teacher has that been the full I've been teaching years? for three, three and practicing for nine okay so you've been practicing for nine teaching for three in the three years I love this notion of up leveling so what what types of up leveling have you seen in your own life like what what results have you created in your own life and mm -hmm. what are some of the results that you're seeing created in the lives of some of your students well Honestly, if curing my insomnia was the only thing meditation had done for me, I would still be hooked. Like, it would still be worth the price of admission. Um, but then that was just really the beginning. Uh, like I said, I, I, I used to get sick three or four times a year, like severe, like tonsillitis. I had to get my tonsils out because it was an occupational hazard being a singer. Um, and I've gotten in nine years, I've gotten two minor colds. I used to get sick three or four times a year. Um, so that's been huge. Insomnia is huge. Uh, reverse aging is huge. I think I look pretty good for 35. Um, not that 35 is old, but like, you know, I feel, I feel good. I actually feel as strong now as I did when I was dancing on Broadway. Eight you have a like a serious glow. Like I, you had a glow when I saw you on the dance floor, but like you still, now it's daytime, Los Angeles. You, you have a glow for sure. Thanks. And you, and I think that's something that's obviously, um, it's indicative of health, but I think there's also sort of, uh, a well-being aspect you can always tell i just saw my family for the first time in three years in arizona over the weekend and they were like you look you know you look good you look like you're you're in a good place like it's it's something beyond a straight physical well-being although you look very healthy thank you yeah and i think we can feel it you know you can tell if someone's happy you can tell if someone's grounded you can tell the second they walk into a room before they even tell you anything and that's a phenomenon of, of mirror neurons, which you can talk more about later, but it's yeah. a relatively recent discovery uh, in psychology. But you can, you can actually feel what's going on inside someone's consciousness before they say anything. Um, so I would say, yeah, I mean, I'm happier. I, um, hmm. My life is just so much more effortless and elegant. You know, mm -hmm. I, I know earlier we were talking about like how much of, I've had, you know, quite a bit of recent success and expansion and the company's growing very quickly and you asked me you know how intentional is that and the answer is very and not at all <laughs> um, you know I have big picture intention but also what I teach and what I practice really is surrender it's surrendering to nature 
It's surrendering to trusting that nature knows better than we do and allowing nature to show up. And now you have to do the work. You know, I mean, I meditate every day, twice a day. I, you know, I've done, you can't skip the work step. But mm -hmm. once you do the work, then you also have to trust it and you have to get out of the way. And that's sort of the phase that I'm in right now is, is letting go and allowing nature to show up. Um, but a big sort of like uh, tangible shift that I've noticed has been in my relationships, both with my family, my friends, but romantic relationships. I used to be in like terrible, borderline abusive <laughs> relationships. Just like, why are you dating that person? <laughs> 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 or people who couldn't see me, like people who didn't have the capacity to really see all of me and I would be hiding in the relationship. And now I'm engaged to be married to this incredible human and it's an adult, kind, fun loving relationship and we have this dog that we both love more than we love each other <laughs> like it's just real fun Beautiful. Um, so that's been a nice shift too in the lives of my clients um it's certainly been more dramatic than mine because you know my story is not a sob story it's like oh i'm so sorry you're on broadway at 22 you poor thing <laughs> <laughs> you know i don't mean to like it to come off as a sob story i think what's remarkable about it remarkable about it is that on paper it was great and yet the experience of it sucked but for some of my clients, like on paper, it does not look great. You know, right. for some of them, they're dealing with uh, quote unquote incurable illnesses or Parkinson's or migraines or severe anxiety or depression or PTSD or ADHD or ADD. And, and in India, we call all of those acronyms stress, <laughs> ADD, ADHD, PTSD. It's yeah. just stress. And we just put all these labels on it, all these acronyms on it. But it's like, it's just stress. And if you get rid of the stress in the body, it knows how to heal itself. And all that stuff, all those ailments, all those imbalances, they start to go away. Sort of, it feels like magic. It feels like by accident, but it's not magic. It's not an accident. It's a byproduct of you getting to the chair every day, twice a day. Yes. I think one of the things I want to touch on, which, which really resonated with me, is you talked about earlier being a, a very an, you know, analytical person and being, I think, as many of us are in this, in this society, trained to try to control every aspect right and improve every aspect and it's led to a lot of these let's call it what you just said stressors or neuroses that, that show up in terms of how, how can i control it you know how can i find the right person in terms of relationship how can i create the perfect job how can i and it's always striving right we're always striving for that next level and in that attempt to control and create oftentimes i think at least I can speak for myself, those have been the moments when I've been striving the hardest where I feel like in some ways the most detached from myself. It, it sounds to me like what you're saying is this is a process that enables you to get out of your own way almost in a way um, and to, to um, surrender to, if you will, a, a wiser aspect of yourself. Is that, how does that work? I mean, is there science behind that? Is it just, is it something you've just seen that you've witnessed or like, how can you, how does that work for someone who's maybe out there like listening uh, at work and is, you know, f feeling a, a profound sense of challenge or stress? Like how would they go about, um, you know, getting into a place where they're getting out of their own way? Yeah. It's a really good question, and I think that it's, it's hard for us to conceptualize if we don't have a visceral experience of it. If you've never sat down and had solid training in meditation to feel what that, what that act of letting go feels like, and then to have it be enjoyable on the other side, and then to let nature support you in this way. Like, I get that that feels like some foreign, like, lovely idea, but it's like, yeah, but I got to go balance my checkbook. Like, that all sounds nice, but I, you know, if I don't do it, it won't get done. Exactly. Um, or, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. Like, we have all these, like, old, crappy, stressy, like, paradigms running around in our head that aren't serving us. 
Um, so, I mean, I would say first and foremost, I mean, obviously I'm biased, but I would say, you know, if you don't have a meditation practice, get one. Find a teacher that you like and you respect. And this was news to me. I just spoke at, you know, Offness Fest, like I was saying, where I won the dance competition. <laughs> um, but I, I said the thing that uh, I got the most feedback from, the most questions around, was when I stopped and I said, find a teacher. Find a teacher who you respect and who you trust. And everyone's hands went up. They're like, what do you mean find a teacher? Because now in this digital age, everyone thinks that they can learn to meditate from an app. And while that's better than watching toddlers and tiaras on TV, it's not the same thing <laughs> as finding a teacher and learning this ancient knowledge. Like, it's powerful stuff. And it's too powerful to put out online for free. It's too powerful to put in apps. Like, there needs to be some, a bit of teacher-student transmission of mm. the really powerful stuff, like the good stuff. And so, you know, find a teacher who you like and you respect. If you don't have access to a teacher, then do find an online training, but actually a training process, you know, not just a challenge. Um, you know, I know that the Oprah Deepak challenges have been really popular, and I'm so thankful for them, and I think they're beautiful, and they're doing really great work. But imagine if we were to say, okay, you guys, on this podcast, we're going to start a 21-day challenge, and now I want everyone for the next 21 days for 20 minutes a day to speak Japanese. Now, unless you already know how to speak Japanese, that challenge is ridiculous. Right. Why are you going to challenge yourself to do something you don't know how to do? And what happens is that people do it for like six or seven days, and they feel like they're failing, and then they quit. And they think, oh, meditation's not for me. My mind's too busy. I'm too stressed. I can't stop my mind from thinking. That surrender thing that Emily was talking about sounds nice, but I can't do it. And this is the number one misconception about meditation is that we think that we have to stop our minds from thinking. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a byproduct of us trying to adapt monastic forms of meditation for our householders. Versus uh, in the style of meditation that I teach, it's not about stopping your mind. You're absolutely allowed to have thoughts. It's part of the healing process. It's a non-directed focus style of meditation where the whole brain starts to light up at the same time. And so you asked if there's science about this whole surrendering thing, and there is. Um, if you look at the human brain, it splits right down the middle. You know, it's 50-50, left brain, right brain. And this is definitely an oversimplification of it, but just for the sake of this talk, let's say that the left brain is in charge of the past and the future. Critical thought, analytical thought, math, balancing our checkbooks, that control muscle that we're all so developed at, that's a left brain function. And most of us have been taking our left brains to the gym our whole lives. Think, take action, achieve, make money so we can be happy right. in the future. Let me control it, let me get it done, let me find that perfect person, let me make this perfect job, let me get another zero in my bank account so that I can be happy in the future. And then meanwhile, our poor little right brain is atrophying. And the right brain is the piece of us that's in charge of the right now. It's the piece of us that is in charge of the present moment, and this is where not only our bliss and fulfillment hang out, but it's also where our creative problem solving hangs out. Mm -hmm. This connectedness, this intuition, this ability to tap into an intelligence that is more intelligent than you, this is a right brain phenomenon. And what meditation does is that it allows you to take your right brain to the gym. It brings your brain back into balance. So if you look at a brain and it splits right down the middle 50-50, I don't think nature makes mistakes. I don't think that nature would have given us 50-50 if it wanted us to use 90-10. And so this is why meditators feel like, oh, well, they just have a charmed life or they're just lucky or everything just works out for them. No, they're not magical. They're not lucky. They're using the brain in the way that it's meant to be used. Yes, there's some planning involved. Yes, you've got to balance your checkbook. Yes, you have to you know, do math sometimes. But there's also a piece of you that is much smarter when you're present. <laughs> Because it's through our five senses, it's through the right now, that we're able to access the future. The present moment is the future in the making. And we access that sixth sense, that intuition, that gut thing, we access that through our five senses. 
And this is one of the things that meditation helps to wake up. But there's all kinds of science behind it. We know now that long-time meditators have a thicker corpus callosum than non-meditators. And corpus callosum is the thin white strip that connects the right and left hemispheres of the brain. Mm. And so we didn't know at the beginning if it was causal or correlated. But now we know that the longer you meditate, the thicker that corpus callosum gets, which suggests that the longer you meditate, the faster the right and left hemispheres of the brain can communicate to each other, which means that even if your boss is yelling at you or if you're stuck in traffic or if your mother-in-law is being a bitch at Thanksgiving, like you're still going to be able to access that right brain connectedness, that compassion, that intuition, and that creative problem solving when it matters. But as far as like the control piece that I think so many of us are so addicted to, this is a really helpful analogy for me. You know in the grocery store, um, when you have like the carts and the parents will push the cart and then on the front there's a little plastic toy car that the kids sit in yeah. and they drive that wheel and they think that they're driving that cart and they're just turning it to the right <laughs> and turning it to the left and they really think they're pushing that cart, they're driving the cart. That's what we humans are like to nature. Nature is pushing the cart, we just think we're driving it. And so I think when we start to wake up to that and, and surrender to that, it becomes so much more elegant, so much more fun, and so much more effortless. Too right. I, I actually, yesterday, had an experience where I was uh, in Arizona. I hiked up Camelback Mountain. And it was interesting because as I was hiking, you know, you know I was very much goal-oriented, right? I'm walking up this mountain, and I'm like, I got to get to the hill. got to get to the top. got to get to the top. And, it was, and I was so not present to this stunningly gorgeous day as I was, like, shooting to the top. And it was only when I sat down and I actually took long enough of a break to start hearing the birds, start feeling the wind, and actually look at this absolutely ridiculously stunning view that I was like, it, 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 was, it was strange. It was, like, it, it was like a different part of my brain shift, you know, like turned on. I was no longer analyzing and I was nowhere thinking about everything I needed to do tomorrow or didn't happen yesterday. I was for that moment at least present to this profoundly beautiful place and i feel like that that for me nature is very much um a uh, profound reminder of you know sort of that balanced place but meditation is the other experience that i where or other place where i have that experience i should say mm -hmm. and i do notice and i don't know what the science is but i do notice if i if i start my day meditating for whatever reason I would say more often than not, my day proceeds way better. Like, and I don't know how you can correlate that 10, 20 minutes of starting the day that way to the day proceeding better. I don't know if it's, you know, scientific. I don't know if it's just I'm looking at things differently. I, I believe it's actually that I've sort of set, I don't know if it's an intention or set the balance in a, in a like you said, in a, in a more intentional way so that I'm, I'm operating more efficiently or more balanced. But mm -hmm. it's... I've noticed it and it's happened enough times to where it's a significant noticing. Mm -hmm. Is there, I know there have been tons of, of studies um, on meditation that actually prove its benefits, but can you talk at all about sort of the neuroscience or, or, or just the physiological aspects of why meditation works? Yeah, it would be my pleasure. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. <laughs> um, but I just want to say thank you for sharing that mountain story because it's actually a really powerful analogy. Yeah. Of, you know, because so many of us, it's, it's a beautiful illustration of this I'll be happy when syndrome. Yeah. You know, I'll be happy when I get to the top of this mountain. But the thing is, if you don't have the ability to be happy right here, right now, 
it's not going to magically happen when you're geographically at the top of that mountain because then guess what now you've proven to yourself that you can climb a mountain and now you can see all the other mountains that you have yet to climb so then the brain goes oh well i'll be happy when i get to the top of that next mountain yeah and then you get to the top of that one. Oh, the next one and we do this with money with relationships romantic relationships is probably the biggest one. Oh, definitely. i'll be happy as soon as i've had my partner i'll be happy as soon as i get a ring on my finger i'll be happy as soon as i finish planning this stupid wedding i'll be happy as soon as we have kids i'll be happy as soon as these stupid kids are out of my house i'll be happy as soon as i divorce this ding dong head you know we just keep doing it like the carrot just keeps getting <laughs> further and further away absolutely and so it's like you guys what are we what are we racing towards we've already arrived there's nowhere to be. We've arrived. It's happening right now. We're currently drowning in abundance. You're listening to this podcast on your iPhone. You're currently drowning in abundance, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's, this, it's this incessant past future, past future. This is where our stress hangs out. And so you ask, you know, what's the science behind why meditation makes you more present? Why does it make you more effective? Why, does it, why do you feel like sitting for 20 minutes in the morning, your day goes better? There's two, well, there's a thousand reasons, but I'm going to talk about two of them. Uh, and the first and possibly the simplest is that when you meditate, at least in the style that I teach, you're giving your body rest that's five times deeper than sleep. And when you give your body that deep rest, it A, knows how to heal itself. Uh, B, you're going to be more awake on the other side. But C, when you're inside of the meditation, you're de-exciting your mind and body. And when you de-excite your body, you create order. When you create order in the body, all the stresses that you've been accumulating your whole life can start to leave the building. So on the other side of that meditation, not only are you more awake, you actually have less stress in your body, which gives you more computing power for the present moment. This is why our performance capabilities go up. But also, when you de-excite your mind and body, you start to access these more subtle states of consciousness, you're accessing the place from where your desires come from. I believe that your desires are divinely inspired, that nature put them there, and inside those desires are the tools to make them manifest. But most of us are so busy trying to control the outcome and being attached to, well, I'll be happy as soon as I achieve this goal, that we stop to ask, why do I want the goal to begin with, or where did the desire come from? Mm. And so when you meditate, what you're doing is it's like, it's like backing up your computer to some cloud in the sky, like the Amazon cloud or the iCloud. You know, it's like this collective consciousness. This is what the right brain is connected to, this collective creativity, this collective consciousness, the unified field theory, God, whatever you want to call it. I don't care what you call it, but that is where our creativity comes from. That is where our desires come from. We simply download them through our right brain. And when you meditate, you're taking that right brain to the gym, so you're actually opening up the channels from which you receive those desires. And in turn, getting rid of those stresses, making yourself more awake so that when you come out of the meditation and go into your waking state, you're more capable, you have more computing power and more presence to accomplish those tasks. So you're simultaneously more detached about the outcome and more capable to actually accomplish it. Wow. It's, it, it's, I had this hit of like thinking about sort of a ladder. You know, like I, I was talking again this, this weekend to my little cousin and um, his mom was like, you know, oh, you know, Michael, tell him about the East Coast schools, you know, and I could see her mind was very much attached to this particular result of her son going to this very prestigious university, which I can totally understand. Um, but it, it sort of hit me in that moment because I, I sort of followed that path of, of thinking about, okay, what, what's the best place, you know, and let's follow U.S. News World Report and rankings and choose... And it was all about choosing based on things that were outside myself, right? And and I and I realized that I have climbed 
several ladders that actually weren't going to where I wanted to be. And, and so in talking, I said, well, what's actually, what, what you know, I said to my cousin Trey, what are you, what are you passionate about? You know, like the, it's so much more, I think, important for us to follow our internal guidance system than all these external validators. Mm -hmm. And to me, at least in my experience, which I think I'm just at the very beginning of my experience with meditation, I want to cultivate a, a lifelong relationship because especially as I, t as I listen to you, I, I recognize how valuable it could be for me. But it's, it, it's, it seems like the one tool really that anyone can use that's so accessible no matter where you are, even if you're in a prison cell, um, especially, to, if, you're in a especially if you're in a prison cell, yeah, to liberate, uh, to liberate really yourself from the, from the, <laughs> from the prisons we create in our mind or these, or these ladders that we've created that we have to climb that may not even be going where we want to go. Mm -hmm. and how, how have you found your life? If you were to look at say, I mean, you've definitely given some examples already, but if you were to say even the last three years of now teaching this, because they say actually that's the most powerful way of internalizing something, right? You can learn something, you can share it, but really if you really want to make it uh, stick, teach it. Mm -hmm. you know? how, has, how, how exponentially have you seen, I don't even want to say results, but how exponentially have you seen your, your clarity, your vision, because I know we talked about this a little bit before, before we got on the show, how have you, what have you seen sort of starting to take place and unfold in your life? Hmm. Speed, you know, by the time I even finish cognizing a thought about what the desire is, it shows up. Um, elegance, effortlessness, mm, compassion. I think I was joking earlier how I used to be like really controlling and angry. And it's so funny when I see my, my old Broadway friends, like people I haven't seen in nine, 10 years that I used to do Broadway with, they're, they're really, really like, what happened to you? <laughs> like, not that I was ever like mean per se, right. but I was definitely sharp and competitive and controlling. And I mean, nice, I was a nice person. I've always been sort of like charismatic, but there was a sharpness to me and a com competition to me. And, and I'm still a little competitive. I, I joke that I'm the most competitive meditation teacher I know. <laughs> but I think that that's, it's okay. It's just who I am. And so I'm trying to embrace that and, um, you know, let it fuel the fire and fan other people's flames as much as possible. Um, but more compassion. Uh, silly little things like parking spaces. Like I joke that meditation gives you better, better parking karma. But I'll just sort of like see a spot where I want to park at a place and it will show up. And, and it feels like magic, but it's, this is probably just 1% of our actual capabilities that we have with our mind. Right. That, you know, if we really start to wake up this 100 billion neuron model machine that we have, a parking space is going to feel like child's play. You know, someone bringing you a tea when you want a tea is going to feel like, why are you wasting your time on that? Um, but silly little things like that just fast and then huge things too like you know the New York Times coming to photograph Ziva meditation and you know the, the globe waking up in the way that it is like when I started teaching three years ago people were not talking about meditation in the way that they are right now I had to really educate people on what it was why would you even want to do it I used to have to really kind of sell it and now I don't sell it at all I just educate people on well this style of meditation will do this to your brain and this style of meditation will do this to your brain and if you think I'm a ding-dong head then I'll go send you to somebody else and if you like me then great let's play but it's, um, it's people are waking up faster and faster and faster. And I think to your point, it's, not, it's no longer about the ladder. It's no longer about, 
well, let me go to the best school and get in the best companies so that I can get the best retirement plans, so I can get the gold watch when I'm 50. Like we're letting go of that old archaic idea of let me do what I'm supposed to for this golden ticket at the end of my life. Right, and living for the end of your life in the first place. Like, yeah. what, 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 how do we get bought into that notion? Right, like who's, whose suggestion was that? And what about what I want? And strangely, and I think this is a bit of a, it's a bit of a double-edged sword for we Westerners because we are so selfish. And this idea of devotion and generosity is not necessarily one that we've trained or cultivated for most of us. But I believe that if you can really get honest about what it is that you want and de-excite your mind and body through meditation or yoga or sex or singing or something that's going to allow you to tap into that right brain and then really ask yourself, what do I want right now? What is it that I want to do? Like I believe that that is where nature is giving us our GPS. That's where nature is cueing us, is through our desires. Mm. The trick is that we can't then get attached to the result. We can't say, well, I'll be happy as soon as this desire comes to fruition. No, it has nothing to do with whether or not the desire plays out. It's about tapping into the desire, taking inspired action, and then allowing nature to show up the way that it me it's meant on the way. And this is where I think, you know, people poo-poo the new agey secreters and the manifestors, and they think that we're all just like, you know, getting high on the couch and secreting our desires. But it's, and while I'm really thankful that the law of attraction is sort of, you know, in the vernacular now, I think it's a pretty rudimentary understanding of the laws of nature. Can you actually break down what the law of attraction is? Because not everyone probably yeah, listening so, knows what it is. So basically it's, it's the thoughts become things. That what you're thinking about, you have the power to manifest. And so this, in a basic sense, kind of what you're talking about with the parking space. Yeah, like I went to Lemonade before I came here and was thinking, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be great to get parking right outside the front door and then whoop, pulled up and there was a parking spot right outside the front door. Um, that would sort of be a silly version of thoughts become things. Um, but you know... It, what you focus on also grows. Is, yes, is what you put your attention on grows, but if, if in your mind you're thinking, I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck, if this is your internal dialogue, then it's very unlikely that your external outpicturing of your life is going to be sunshine and roses. Well, also, you, I would imagine it would, it would be, uh, it, would, it would suck. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. If, if you're thinking my life sucks all the time, I mean, I know what I'm in a, you know, frankly, not the best place, and I'm thinking everything sucks, you know, or whatever. Uh, generally speaking, that's what comes to Mm -hmm. comes to me whether that's the law of attraction or not, I can't say but like you generally uh, it feels like either that's because the way you're looking at it or that's what you're creating it, it seems it's a self-fulfilling prophecy mm -hmm. yeah. I mean as as you change the lens through which you perceive things you change the things that you perceive right so I mean if the lens is foggy with stress things are going to seem stressy if the lens is covered with bliss the things that you're looking at are going to look blissy and so so the law of attraction is sort of, to me, it's a bit of um, a little rudimentary. It's like, well, I want a Ferrari, so I'm going to put a picture of a Ferrari on my door and on my mirror and in my, you know, in my car that I have right now. I'm just going to think about a Ferrari all the time, and then I'm going to secret, I'm going to manifest this Ferrari that will come into my existence some magical way. And while I think there's some truth in that, if you're thinking about a Ferrari, there's chances that you might manifest a Ferrari. But the thing that I, where I think we missed the boat a little bit is your happiness doesn't lie on the other side of manifesting that Ferrari. Yes. It's like it kind of played upon our I'll be happy when syndrome and using these natural laws to sort of try to get what we want, but it's still controlling. When I think that when you really start to tap into these Vedic philosophies and this natural law, you start to realize that 
the desires are simply an indicator of where nature is using us to deliver our fulfillment. It's not where we go to fill ourselves up because it's impossible. A person cannot make you happy. A Ferrari cannot make you happy. A cup of tea cannot make you happy. If you're already happy, then you will enjoy those things when they come. And actually, what meditators report is that the desire between, that the gap between their desires and those desires becoming manifest gets shorter and shorter. And I think it's to do to what we were talking about earlier, that you're tapping into the source, the place from which those desires come from. Um, but I also feel like I want to answer your original question, which was, you know, what's the science behind why meditation makes you perform better? Yeah, please answer that. Because as you were actually just talking about it, I was thinking about some of the brain chemicals that are also released, right? So serotonin or dopamine, and, and then when you're in stress, cortisol, and actually how those chemicals work in the brain and how meditation um, works to abate maybe the stressors or actually enhance some of the, some of the, the pleasure centered. Because I think what we're often looking for in those external things is actually just a, a, a trigger in the mind, which is a flooding of dopamine or a flooding of, which is why you feel great when you work out, right? You're totally. like, if you're stressed and you freaking, you know, you're on, you have a bunch of cortisol in your system and you actually have the motivation to go work out. I mean, probably you can get some dopamine from eating a donut as well, but uh, I, I, obviously the much better form of doing it is to go work out. But meditation, talk about that because I, I'm very curious about what the, the sort of the brain science is behind uh, meditation. Yeah. Awesome. Let's do it. <laughs> so I think we really want to understand why the body reacts to stress in the way that it does. We have to cut back in time a few thousand years okay. and say we're hunting and gathering in the woods and a saber-toothed tiger jumps out at us uh, with the intent to kill, let's say. Now, your body's going to flood with a series of chemical reactions. Your digestion will flood with acid to shut down digestion because it takes a lot of energy to digest your food and you need all hands on deck now to fight or flee this tiger. That same acid will seep into your skin so that you don't taste very good if you get bitten into by that tiger. Your vision will go from you know, full vision to tunnel vision so that you're not distracted from your opponent. Uh, your bladder and bowels will evacuate so that you're light on your feet so you can fight or flee. This is why people get the nervous poos before they have big presentations to make. Um, your immune system will go to the back burner because who cares if you're going to get cancer if you're about to be killed by a tiger. Again, we need all hands on deck to fight or flee this predatory attack. Um, or cortisol levels increase, adrenaline levels increase, and basically this series of chemical reactions is very, very useful. It's very good for you if your demands are predatory attacks. Thing is, our demands are no longer predatory attacks. Now it's emails and text messages and Facebook and traffic and in-laws and coming out to your parents at Thanksgiving and traveling, none of which call for a fight or flight stress reaction. Now this reaction is uh, disallowing us from performing at the top of our game. It's become a maladaptive response. And it's taking so much of our computing power and our battery power uh, preparing for this imaginary predatory attack that we have much less energy and awareness for the task at hand. This is, I mean, I have, I want to make a shirt that says stress makes you stupid. It's not that popular, but it's true. There's a reason why you can't find your keys when they're in your hand when you're rushing out the door. There's a reason why you can't find your glasses when you're freaking out about where your glasses are. Because you're panicking and your body has launched into that fight or flight stress reaction and it's disallowing you from accessing that right brain. It's disallowing you from accessing your full computing power. And this is why mindfulness is so, pow is so popular right now because it's, it's the act of single tasking. It's retraining ourselves to do one thing at a time. 
And when you do that, you start to have more computing power for the task at hand. So what meditation does is by giving you deep rest, by de-exciting your mind and body, you actually let those old stresses start to leave the building, which means that, that adrenaline and cortisol starts to leave, but you're also simultaneously flooding the brain with dopamine and serotonin, like you said, which are bliss chemicals. They're also alkaline in nature versus acidic in nature. So when you start meditating, you're actually changing the pH of your body, which is why I'm 35 now and don't have gray hair. This is why you can actually reverse your body age by up to eight years in five years. You meditate every day, 20 minutes, twice a day for five years, you can go, you're not really going back in time, but you can reverse your body age, um, which sounds totally magical and insane, but. Yeah, how does that work? That sounds incredible. Yeah. <laughs> when I first heard about this, I was like, well, no, this is not, you can't go back in time. There is no such thing as a fountain of youth. There's no magic pill and it's not a magic pill. The more I started studying it, I realized that it's not that meditation is reversing your body age. What it's doing is that it's slowing down the acceleration of aging that stress mm. has on the body. And if yeah. you want proof that stress ages the body expeditiously, take a look at any president the day they take office, and then that same president one year later. Absolutely. They all age a decade in a few years, and that's, that's the weight of the world on their shoulders. And so what meditation's doing is that it's giving you deep rest. You're actually slowing down the molecules in your body when you're meditating, which has its own sort of like slowdown of aging. But then also you're changing the acidity, you're changing the, the alkalinity and pH of your body, which changes skin elasticity, vision, digestion, immune function. All of these things start to function as they're meant. And it's not magic. It's a byproduct of giving your body deep rest. You go to the gym every day, twice a day, you're going to get stronger. You meditate every day, twice a day, your brain is going to work better. Makes a ton of sense. Wow. So basically, a lot of our fear and stress is based off of, of, of just the brain, the way the brain was wired back in saber-toothed tiger days. Mm -hmm. And what we need to do, or need to do, what we have the option to do, what's available to us, is actually, I wouldn't say trick the brain, but actually working with the brain so as to slow down that fear, that fight-or-flight response, and open up some of the cognitive possibilities that lie dormant when you're stressed. Yeah, so beautifully said. Thank you. <laughs> let's go on the road. Yeah, besides, yeah let's do it. I, I mean, this is just kind of, this is actually, I'm like, man, I got to start meditating. What are you doing tonight yeah. at 7 p.m.? Uh, I mean, like, I'm coming meditating. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. So you're, so yeah, so tell us more about this. So you're offering, and I love the way you're, you're, you're teaching, you're in L.A., you're in New York, mm -hmm. um, Obviously, people can look up Ziva meditation, but what what do you recommend as a as a basic step? I mean, I think you said already, you know, finding a teacher, an actual teacher, mm -hmm. and obviously, having worked with you, I would highly recommend uh, coming to find you. Um, for those who may be listening in another place around the globe or what have you, what what are some of the first steps that people can take on this journey to get themselves in action? Mm -hmm. So. I'll give some, some specific action plans, but I think step one is for most of us, we have to let go of this old misconception about what meditation is supposed to be. Because there's like this rampant misconception that in order to meditate, you have to stop your mind from thinking. And I don't know who this person is that's going around telling everybody this, but he's got the same publicist as Kale. And I really wish that I could find this guy and teach him <laughs> how to meditate uh, because it would make my job so much easier. Um, here's the news, you guys. You can't stop your mind. You can't give your mind a command to stop. The mind thinks involuntarily, just like the heart beats involuntarily. So if you sit down to meditate with the intention of, okay, brain, stop thinking, 
you're going to go like this. Oh, that noise is really loud. Oh, that was a thought. Oh, now I'm thinking about how I'm thinking. Oh, crap, now I'm thinking about how I'm thinking about how I'm thinking. Oh, no, I hate meditation. I suck at this. I'm quitting. I failed. And none of us will do anything for very long that we feel like we're failing at. Right. So you wouldn't sit down and meditate and be like, okay, heart, stop beating. Or, hey, liver, stop cleaning my blood. So why do we sit down to meditate and give our minds a command to stop an involuntary action? That is impossible. Um, so that's step one. Just kind of let go of that whole like clear your mind nonsense. So the expectation. Like let go of expectations that you have to totally quiet your, your head all of a sudden. Yeah, and also like let yourself be good before you're great and even bad before you're good. Like mm -hmm. let yourself be a beginner at something. Um, and so I would say if, if people want to start, you could do five minutes sitting, you want to have your back supported but your head free, turn off your cell phone, turn off your computer, tell your roommates and your partners that you're taking a little nappy poo, and just um, sit down, close your eyes, take about 30 seconds just chilling, and then you could pick up the word one, you could use that almost like a mantra, it's like a, I, I call this the M word technique, so it's not quite meditation, but it's a nice way to kind of ease your way into the water, and you can use the word one, and you're just repeating it easily, silently, gently in the background of your mind, knowing that it's absolutely okay to have other thoughts. You'll probably go off on a trail of thinking, and then you can just come back to this word as an anchor. And then you do that for about five minutes, and just check the time. Whenever you're wondering how much time has passed, just take a look at your watch. Um, after about five minutes has passed, you can keep your eyes closed, let go of the word, and then just stay with your eyes closed for a few minutes, and I like to use that as a time for gratitude. Just go through and give thanks for every single thing you can think of. But you want to give yourself some time to kind of float back up to the surface with your eyes closed. And if you like that, the next day you could build up to six minutes. If you like that, you could do seven. And all the way up to about 10 minutes. And if you're doing that and you're committing to that every day, then I would say it's time to go and find a teacher. Um, there are a, surprising, a surprisingly large number of teachers around these days. Like I said, I teach Vedic meditation. Um, and I teach a course in New York and LA. It's two hours a day for four days. And then you graduate and you're an expert. You have the practice to take with you for life. It's not like you have to keep coming back. It's not like acupuncture or massage or yoga. You, we really make you self-sufficient at the end of that time. Um, now, what was so happening- So eight hours, basically, yep, that's and you're self-sufficient. Yep. And, you can and I start with an intro talk. So it's an hour and a half, and I talk a lot about what we talked about today give people an opportunity to meet me, see if they vibe with me, ask questions, and decide if this is something they want to invest in, and do they trust me, and does it feel like a good fit? Because it really can be quite um, a powerful relationship, the relationship that you have with your teacher. It doesn't have to be. It could be eight hours of your life and you can peace out, but it can be a lifelong relationship. It's sort of up to you as to how much support you want. Um, but what was happening is I started teaching in New York and LA, and so many of my clients were saying, Emily's has changed my life. It's been so incredible. I feel like this is the key that I've been missing. I really want my Aunt Matilda to learn this, but she lives in Nebraska. Or my cousin lives in Rio, and there's no teachers there. And this is why I created Ziva Mind, which was the world's first online meditation training. And I really made it for people who don't have access to a, a teacher face-to-face, -face, which I think is the best way to learn. But if you don't have access to a teacher, Ziva Mind actually walks you through a matriculation. So it's a video training. It's about 20 minutes a day of video training, and each day builds upon the previous day's training and there's Q&A calls, and there's guided visualizations, and there's a really beautiful online community. So even though you're doing it from a computer, you're actually getting step-by-step -step training, and you feel very supported in that practice. Um, so that's vivamind.com. 
Um, and then other than that, just, you know, do a Google search, ask your friends, you know, ask your friends who you respect and who are glowing and who look healthy. You know, don't <laughs> ask your friend who's like, you know, drinking every day and complaining about so their life. So not two in the morning at the bar. No, that's not a great place to <laughs> seek out a meditation teacher. Yeah. <laughs> Unless I'm there dancing. <laughs> there you go, yeah. If, if, if you see Emily dancing on the dance floor, then uh, you'll know because she's uh, quite a good dancer. Thank you. Yeah. So let me ask you a sort of a separate but related question. Um, what are what are three of the most inspirational uh, pieces of information you've come across? Whether it be a book or I don't know something something you discovered at this awesomeness fest. Like what what are what are three of the ones that have been lighting you up lately? Mm, you mean books, quotes, people, yeah, songs? Any of the above. I left it intentionally abstract. Because I was oh. going to say books, but then I was like, you know what? You were just at a conference with like some, some, some mm. awesome people. So, you know, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe it's people. I, I'm, I'm always looking for, um, for, great, for great resources, great individuals, great you know, books. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. I've got about a thousand happening. How much time do we have? For whatever reason, the, the first person that came to mind when you said that was Marianne Williamson. Mm. And I'm sure most people already know about her if you're listening to this podcast, but she's just been, even though I'm not a big A Course in Miracles person, like my training's been very separate. Um, to me, she was just such a, um, a beautiful model of this female power figure where she's incredibly feminine, but very strong at the same time. And... I remember watching her years ago was thinking, you know, I'll, I'll be doing that. And thank you to her for, for paving the way. And even how she's infused consciousness into politics, I think that's very brave and probably work that wasn't her preference. Mm. You know, it probably didn't look like such sexy work for her. And I know it was hard work. And so I just have a lot of gratitude to her. I don't really have a relationship with her personally yet. Um, we've met a few times, but I just, that was the first person that came to mind was Marion Williamson. And I really think like see her live if you can. I mean, she has a million books and videos and things, but her in person is really something to behold. Yeah. Her, I met her recently, mm -hmm. actually. Um, a friend of mine was one of her advisors. I don't know her work that well, mm -hmm. but I've always loved her quote, which I think is often, uh, attributed to Nelson Mandela, but it was actually Marion Williamson. And I don't know the quote. You may know it. Do you, do you, okay. Please, I used to have please. it like painted on my wall. Share it because I'll, I... <laughs> I'll probably butcher. I know that I know the essence of it, which I love. But Ooh. can you share well, it with us? I mean, it's a long one. But uh, also, I was—I uh, don't like to brag, but I was Florida's junior miss in 1997. <laughs> <laughs> there is an Emily Fletcher day in Deland, Florida. Um, try not to be intimidated. Okay? Deland, <laughs> bang, love it. Uh, but when I was Florida's junior miss, when I came back to give away my title. To the next Florida's Junior Miss, uh, I actually read this quote on my, you know, my like recorded speech where I took the stage and no my flowers. <laughs> oh man, um, but it's it's a long one. But the essence is, it's it's not yours to judge your greatness. That it's actually it's our greatness. When we wake up our own greatness, we inspire others to do the same. Yeah. And I think for so many of us, especially people who are either born into high states of consciousness or who are incredibly intelligent or physically attractive or have some sort of a genetic or developed skill that feels uh, like the tall poppy syndrome, like maybe you're doing something better than your friends, there's this sort of uh, old habit to want to hide or make yourself less than or not trying to not make other people feel bad mm -hmm. because of your greatness. And that is a disservice to you and it's an insult to the people around you. Mm. 
don't assume that the people around you can't rise to the challenge or haven't already or aren't currently doing that. It's pretty arrogant to think, you know, well, I'm better than everyone else, so let me hide my light so that other people aren't intimidated. And this, this quote really resonated with me because I was, you know, I, was, I looked like I was 30 since I was 13. Like, I grew up very fast. I was very mature and very intelligent at a very young age and, and then was in performing and, you know, was talented. Like, I could sing and dance and act. And, and those felt like things I hadn't earned. It felt like they were given to me. And it felt like maybe not, I mean, I worked really hard, but I also had this, I had some natural capabilities. And so I feel like I, I had some guilt around that. And I tried to hide or um, not intimidate people with the talents that I had. And in hindsight, it's just, I robbed myself of the full potential. And I also robbed the people around me from the opportunity to stepping into their full potential. Mm. Like it's not ours to judge who's doled out what. You know, we're given the gifts that we're given. It's our job to bring them into fruition and to utilize them for our own highest good, but also for the highest good of everyone around us. Yeah, I love that. It's it's it speaks to me because I I've always, especially after living in Sri Lanka for a couple of years, where humility is so celebrated. I mean, if you're the head rocket scientist in the country and someone comes up and says, "Oh, I just saw this really cool spaceship. Do you know anything about that?" You know, in, in Sri Lanka. The ethic would be, oh, I've I've heard about that. You know, it's very much uh, humble, and I love I love that humility because I you know I think the far the the false sort of ego can be very off putting. Uh, that said, I think false humility as well is a tremendous disservice, and and so many of us I think you know we fear we fear our we fear our, our failure but i think even more so we fear our, our greatness mm -hmm. and and hold ourselves back for that very thing you say you know the sort of those who don't know tall poppy syndrome i first heard about it in australia but you know like oh you're you're getting too big for your britches so to speak mm -hmm. and but if you didn't embrace your gift you know um how many people wouldn't have the gift of meditation or if you know, if Nelson Mandela didn't embrace his bigness, or the you know whatever whoever it is that you respect, that 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 takes such a courage, you know, mm -hmm. and a grounded humility to say I'm willing to be judged. I mean, I think that's what many of us fear. I'm willing to put myself out there and be judged, in in accordance with my deeper truth. And actually, you know, while maybe I was with uh, this last weekend, I was with Sean Stevenson, the, the, the three foot giant, you know, and he's literally three feet tall. He was born and has an incredible story, um, which, which everyone should, should check out. But, you know, he was talking about, I asked him, you know, do you get haters? You know, do you have people who, you know, who, you know, give you a hard time, um, online or in person? And he said, you know, he does. But I sat there in this room and listened to him speak all the most resonant speakers I've ever seen in my entire life. A man who, does not live as a victim, a man who embraces his bigness to such a degree that he brought in, you know, hundreds of people all coming to see him and has spread his message to thousands around the world. And his, his whole, his mission is to rid the world of insecurity, to have people basically embrace their bigness and to see a man who's three foot tall in a wheelchair being like, embrace your bigness and literally modeling that, like owning it. I was yes. like, man, who, who are you to play small? You know, yeah. like, like this was like the manifestation of that. I was like, wow, it was that, it was powerful. What a gift. Yeah. So I would say to your Marianne Williamson, I would say Sean Stevenson. Yeah. Um, but I, I asked for three, so you give sure me two did. more. You sure did. 
Um, you know, The Fountainhead also comes to mind, mm. a book by Ayn Rand that I read when I was in high school. I don't know why this high school theme is coming up for me when you're asking these questions, because yeah. you know, most of the knowledge that I have that's really impacted people I've gotten in the past nine years, but whatever, let's let it, let it rock with high school. Um, but I think I was in this phase where I was, you know, hiding again. And when I read Ayn Rand, it was, it was. I mean, it might be taking the pendulum to the other, the other side, where it is civilizations are built on top of the ego of man. Mm. You know, architecture is progressed because of the ego of man. Like this is how we, um, you know, propel society forward is through this sort of like inherent uh, need to create and achieve and even some level of competition mm. um, but it was it was it spoke to a deeper truth which was step into your greatness mm. you know be all that you are and it really it really uh, I was proud of myself for reading that big of a book when I was 16 <laughs> it's <just> like <laughs> a giant book I felt really arrogantly proud of that yeah. <laughs> um, but it also just it was one of those things that helped me at an early age to kind of you know, step into my power. This is a silly little story, but I was—I um, did Cinderella, the musical, at my little theater that I was growing up in. Um, I say little, but it's a great theater called Young Actors Theater, and uh, I was the understudy for Cinderella. And there was 15 shows, and the girl who had gotten cast as Cinderella had eight of them, eight of the shows, and I got seven. So even though I was the understudy, I was basically double cast. But I was a freshman, and she was a senior, and so there was a bit of like. This is a silly story. I don't know why I'm telling you this, but here it goes. Um, but like the seniors who were all the leads were like mad that this freshman girl had gotten as many performances as the lead. And they all decided they were going to sabotage my shows, hmm. that they were going to just make the shows terrible um, when I was the lead. And I, I just remember being astounded at how, how cruel that was. And I was like, well, I didn't choose, I didn't give myself those shows. I just felt like such a personal attack on... Like this little girl, it was a 14-year-old little girl. And I think because one of the times that when I was young, stepping into my greatness, it was met with such right. um, cruelty that I think it, it created this habit that could have really spiraled down. And so when I found people like Marianne Williamson, and when I found this book, The Fountainhead, that were speaking to like, no, you have to shine your light. It's not for you. It's for everyone else. Mm. Like, it's why I think it just really, um, it resonated with me. This is why I also think that there's this paradox of, your, divine, your desires are divinely inspired. Mm. They're not for you. Right. It's how nature's using you to deliver your fulfillment. Right. And so it's this beautiful paradox of like, well, I can selfishly go after what I want and simultaneously be detached about the outcome because whatever happens on the way is what's meant, hmm. provided that we're operating from a place of fulfillment. Yeah, that's that to me speaks to almost, um, you know, regardless of what your faith is uh, and I you know and it doesn't even have to be a sort of a religious connotation but people I've seen oftentimes operate in their bigness um, are, are are frequently in my experience but not exclusively people of faith whatever that faith may be because it, it's sort of a conduit for them to say this actually isn't about me it's about something larger than myself but then in relation to that it's no longer about them right so it's no longer like you don't get into the same conversation around um around ego etc because for whatever reason you've channeled that to be about uh about something way bigger mm. right and when, mm -hmm. when you're when you're operating from that place the the level that the world comes to support you is 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 extraordinary i mean i, I remember 
pursuing someone like Scott Harrison, a chair, who created Charity Water, which is now I, don't, I can't remember how much they've. I think they've raised over a hundred million dollars for fresh water solutions. But him going from talking about how egoic he was to then, you know, returning to his faith and creating this organization from a club promoter to founding an organization which has now raised more than a hundred million dollars for clean water. I mean, that level of channeling is so is so um, so profound. Mm-hmm. And you see it in every single profession. Singers, athletes, dancers, lovers, uh, painters, uh, architects, like anything, mm-hmm. any performance or company creation, anytime you're stepping into the unknown, if you want nature's support, it behooves you to remind yourself to get out of the way and that it's not your idea. Yeah. They're not your ideas. You're downloading them from something bigger than you and you're creating them for someone else. Hmm. You're a conduit. You know, what also just, as you said, that was also thinking about athletes and how the highest performing athletes oftentimes talk about like things moving through them, actually in visualizing that, you know, not mm-hmm. being in their heads about like, oh, it's the last, more just like literally having visualized that final shot hundreds or thousands of times and getting into that almost meditative state, the flow, they call it the flow state, right? Yep. Getting into flow state and performing from that level. You know, I got interviewed on the Huffington Post to speak about Phil Jackson when he took over for the Knicks. Yeah. Because, you know, Phil Jackson uh, is, you know, he was the coach for the Bulls. I grew up in Chicago. Okay, yeah. So you know. You know, and Michael Jordan's coach and uh, Kobe Bryant's coach. And, you know, and he, I'm reading his book right now called Sacred Hoops. Yeah. And it talks. Spiritual Lessons of a Hardwood Warrior. Yes, totally. (laughs) You know the subtitle. I've read it for sure. It's a great book. (laughs) And it's all about the spiritual meditation practices that he uses with his, you know, with his teams and his players. And it's so fascinating to see, like, you know, you don't necessarily uh, equate basketball players with being super spiritually evolved. And yet, like, the greats, no matter what your profession is, if you're truly a great, you're tapped into something better than you. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, bigger than you. Sure, sure. Um, you know, this is my, one of my favorite stories about Michael Jackson. Um, I was watching This Is It, the documentary, and they were interviewing his manager. And he said that Michael used to call him all the time at like 3, 4, 5 in the morning. And, um, and his manager was like, Michael, what is it? He's like, Firefly. We need Firefly. And his manager would be like, Michael, we'll just talk about it tomorrow. And Michael would be like, no. Get up, write it down. We need fireflies on the tour. And his manager would be like, Michael, come on. He'd be like, no, if we don't do it, Prince will. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like innovating at such a fast rate that he knew that if he didn't, when he was getting those downloads, if he didn't take action, yeah. you know, that Prince was innovating right behind him. And so it's just, it's a, it's a little bit of like a, a competitive story, but it's an interesting example of. These ideas are floating around. You know, creativity is just looking for people who are awake and who are raising their hands mm. and saying, yes, I will take action on this. Yes, I will bring this thing into fruition. And the people who are awake and raising their hands and taking action, this is who nature continues to use for more ideas. It's like being the CEO of a company and having a bunch of employees. The people who show up on time, who are awake, who finish the projects quickly and who execute them, that's who you're going to give more projects to. These yeah. are the people you're going to give raises to. This is how we get nature's support. And it doesn't matter, P.S., if it's a good idea or a bad idea. It's just who's bringing it into fruition. Nature doesn't judge it as good or bad. Nature's just like, who's taking action? That's who I'm going to give more ideas to. So, and, and this I've seen very clearly, because uh, the ideation, inspiration, I mean, there's a lot of people who get ideas, but to get 
to get a caliber of idea and actually see through the execution because I think that's where a lot of people fall short. Is is a, uh, I don't want to say a lot of people fall short, but there's a clear difference between those who continually execute mm-hmm. at a high level and many of those that I've met that I that I see executing at a high level have this type of a practice mm-hmm. in their life, mm-hmm. whether it be meditation. Um, oftentimes some type of visualization, which I think is also a form mm-hmm. of meditation. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's like people talk about Olympic athletes and, you know, it's like I've, I've been seeking coaches for various aspects of my life that I really want to improve on. And I say, well, you don't need to coach in that, this and that. And I was like, if you look at an, anyone who's performing at the highest level, you know, if it's an actor, if it's a, if it's a, you know, a musician, if it's a, if it's an athlete, they all have coaches right and many of those coaches are trying to just bring them back to that that meditative place that visualization that place that quiets the mind so they can keep with that ideation and execution to Mm -hmm. take it to the highest level Mm -hmm. and that is a right brain left brain balance because what i think what you mentioned is that some people get the right brain they get the creativity they get the ideas they get into very high levels of consciousness they'll sit around and meditate all day every day and they're like i'm good i've got everything i need right here why would i ever go outside i've got all my bliss and fulfillment inside of me and that's part of the story and i would even say that that's the most important part that you have to start there you have to access your bliss and fulfillment inside of you you have to find a means by which to settle down de-excite and access those desires but then if you don't execute on them then you're not delivering your fulfillment. Mm. And that is that left brain, that's where that achiever ego, I'll be happy when thing serves us. Mm. Because that's the thing that allows you to take your fulfillment out on a field trip. And that is where we really start to get nature's support, is when we start to have both. Take your fulfillment out on a field trip. I might, uh, I might borrow that one. Great. I like it, I like Let's it. Let's make a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> We so, are fulfillment delivery vehicles. Yeah, we are fulfillment delivery vehicles. And, and, and in no uncertain terms, meditation is a fast, I want to say fast track, but is, is a profound tool for true fulfillment. I haven't found anything that's faster or more powerful. If I do, we'll do another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I may try to uh, try to get you on again anyway. Okay, great. I <laughs> absolutely um, love the conversation. Emily Me too. Fletcher, you are. I want to acknowledge you. I want to acknowledge you for um, stepping into your greatness, for being a conduit uh, and a teacher think for another generation if you will um, I've studied meditation now for for some time uh, but I think the knowing you um, having lived in and living in New York City being very much in of the world I acknowledge you for bringing that truth in a way that I think everyday people can understand it um, I actually was introduced to meditation in Sri Lanka and there was there was sort of this this talk of the village dwelling monk and the forest dwelling monk. And I know the style of of meditation you teach isn't monastic, but I always, um, I always resonated with the idea of the village dwelling monk because while I thought it was fascinating, you know, I I mean, you know, that someone could go into a forest and literally be by themselves and use that as a tool to enlightenment, quote unquote, I was much more fascinated by someone going deep into the you know, into the grit, you know, into the, the village or in our case into New York City or Tokyo or, you know, Mumbai 
and literally amidst the chaos of the mind, which is with 8 million or 20 million people on broadcast and, and all those different stresses, you know, being created on a daily basis to be, to be a resonant, to be a resonant being or to be attuned as you, as I think you can be when you're meditating, to be at peace within, uh, is such a profound gift to changing that frequency, you know? And if you get enough people that, that tap in, and I saw that actually when I lived in Sri Lanka, there's a guy named Dr. Aryaratna who um, held a mass meditation during a time of civil war, actually, mm. under uh, the Bodhi tree, which is the, the, the tree, a cutting of the tree under which the Buddha attained enlightenment. And there's a, a city called Anuradhapura, which is a very sacred, many thousand year old city. And he had an inter-ethnic meditation, which was in some ways a very uh, assertive act because, you know, there was such, there was an ethnic war. And, and he, he got hundreds of thousands of people all from all the different ethnicities to come together and sit in silence and meditate. Mm. And uh, this woman, uh, Joanna Macy, called it the, 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 the loudest silence ever heard. Oh. And, I, and I thought that was, that was really profound and beautiful. But I think if we can bring more of that type of uh, energy to the increasing noise of our world, it'll, it'll be a... Uh, be a profound act. Yeah, and the ripple effect of it will be great, not just for the people who are sitting, but for everyone around it. And this is really where neuroscience is starting to go. Like, we, we don't need any more science telling us that meditation is good for us. Like, we know that. Yeah. that. We got that one covered. Now we're starting to measure if 100 people sit in Venice, how does that affect everyone else in Venice? If 1,000 people sit in Manhattan, how does that change the brainwaves of everyone else in Manhattan? And now that we have these body data monitoring devices, yes. we can actually start to monitor it. And so it's exciting times. And the, the skeptics and the people who need proof and all that, like science is catching up. And so it's, we're entering into an exciting time. Yes, indeed we are. Exciting times indeed. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Emily Fletcher. It likely will not be our last. Uh, she is an amazing human and fascinating to speak with. And per the last point around group meditations, it's part of my um, intention for 2020 to host a large-scale meditation, which I spoke about in the Mind Key around what I call the Legacy Campaign, which I'll be talking more about in 2020. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Your feedback is always welcome. I'm so honored to have you as part of this community. You can hit me up on social anytime at Michael Trainer. Uh, if you want to learn more about the campaign and get exclusive offers to a variety of different uh, opportunities through Peak Mind, experiences, products, etc., you can find us at peakmind.org and sign up for the email newsletter. I provide uh, a weekly newsletter, never spam. Uh, and include insights from the podcast as well as uh, some exclusive uh, opportunities for our subscribers. So check it out, peakmind.org. And as always, if, if you enjoyed the episode, it means the world to me. If you share it out, leave us a rating and review on uh, iTunes, Apple, helps us move up in the algorithm and grow this community. So thank you guys so much for listening. It means the world to me. Uh, I'm going to be going very hard in 2020 to bring you the best possible guests and insights that you can use to go out and live your inspired life. <laughs>